Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by James Brown, the one and the only founder of Loaded Magazine. James is a real inspiration of mine, a bundle of energy who forged his own path in times that were not too dissimilar to today through economic strife and political dubiousness. Um, James brought his, what he describes as a, a lippy kid persona to the world of publishing through his fanzine Attack on Bazaag and it was featured editor of NME by the time he was 22 and went on to incredible success which we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about creativity, fun and being aggressive in leading with those passions. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hope you're all good out there. It's crazy weather, crazy times, crazy politics. As we've discussed many times, there's a lot of tests for these little minds of ours, but I hope you're holding up well. Get in touch if you're not. I'm always happy to have a chat. Um, big thank you to the previous episode, Ben Mottershead. That was one of the most popular opening week episodes I've had in a long time. Um... I'm not surprised. We got into Ben's ADHD and neurodiversity and building a design agency. There's a lot to love. He's a very fun, um, inspiring and knowledgeable character. So he's only two years into running Studio BND, which stands for the brilliant but never dull. <laughs> and um, Ben opened up about ADHD and we, we got into all that and we talked about the kind of you know, the puzzle of the minds that we have that make us good for this stuff. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. It's out there now on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Um, as ever, mentioned at the top of the show, go and check out the founding sponsor, Illustration X. They're up to some brilliant stuff as ever. You can go and read their news section if you want to get behind the scenes and their creative projects and their global range of illustrators and what they're up to for you illustration and design heads. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about the show? That's something I wanted to ask before we get into James Brown. So um, when we started this thing, invariably I was an illustrator doing a lot of illustration things, and I still am. I had a lot of design friends. I was living in London at the time, so I was well connected. So I leaned on those contacts, and um, you know, a lot of the early stuff was based around illustration and visual communication and design. And don't get me wrong, it still is. That's what I do for a living. I'm still very passionate about that. But as time's gone on and I've talked to a broader range of people and got more into what it means to be creative humans. The topics have invariably gone, you know, out there. I've had museum curators, I've had neuroscientists on the show, I've had firefighters. Got big ones coming up. We're talking about addiction, we're talking about fight psychology because there's a lot of parallel flow states in one of my guests' long career as a, a judoka. That's uh, someone who does judo. Well, how good is that word, by the way? <laughs> and the flow states in, you know, in creativity and making art. 
So I'm not afraid to go there and push the boundaries for this show, and that's something I want to do increasing amounts as we move forward. And I just want to know how you feel about that. Is that something that turns you off for you? You know, do you prefer to just hear from the illustrators and the designers and you dip in for those episodes? Because that's absolutely fine if you do. Or do you like the way it's going with the, the range in, in, in episodes? Hit me up at Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod on social media. You'll get a quicker response from at Ben Talon because that's what I'm on more. Or you can email me privately if you'd like to. DM me or email me hello at bentalon.com. Love to hear audience feedback. It's what's made me a better interviewer over the years. Um, but this is not about me. This is about James Brown. And James is a real inspiration of mine. So I'm just off the back of Animal House, his awesome memoir. Please go and read it or listen to it. I, I did the audio, but I'm a new father of twins. I say new father. I'm almost at three years now, but it still feels new. And I'm still not quite back to a position where I can churn through books in physical format like I once did. So audiobooks have become the way that I've um, kept up my reading. And um, it's a brilliant listen slash read because it's, well, there's a lot of parallels. We're going to talk about that. So today, you know, we're in a political shitstorm. We've got a government that I believe doesn't have the well-being and the benefit of the majority of the people close to its heart, let's put it that way. I'm not going to go off about politics today. But it wasn't too dissimilar back in 1984 when when James founded Attack on Bazaar and started his own fanzine. So a big fanzine culture back then, maybe coming off pulp, uh, of punk. I don't know. I don't know what the roots were, but he was a passionate music fan and it's very inspiring how James learned his craft and just learned on the job how to make a fanzine, got out there and used a big mouth to sell it and a a lovable kind of exuberant personality to, as he puts it, knock on doors, to go to gigs at universities and the likes and sell the thing. And it's incredible that, you know, he would go on to become enemy features editor by the age of 22 off the back of doing this and just getting to London and just having it and being a part of it. And there's so much creativity and um, innovative thinking involved. So I just had to pester him. And thankfully for me, it didn't take much pestering because James is a lovely, warm, genuine guy and he's happy to talk about this stuff. And, you know, yes, he's trying to push the book, but on the other hand, he just loves creativity, as I hope you'll take away from this conversation. So we're going to get into all that about making your own direction, about why it's more important than ever to use these tools that we've got, the TikToks and the Instagrams and the digital tools, and uh, you know, in our laps to to make our own voices heard and our own creativity and it's very very good stuff we talk about the ethos of loaded which was a lot about fun and he describes it as like when a teacher left the classroom which i thought was brilliant and so he described the loaded office and contrary to you know misguided popular belief it wasn't about topless models and the rest of it which is what it later became after james had left but james felt that there was a lack um Though there wasn't anyone capturing the voice of young men at the time and what they were into, whether that be sport, fun, pastimes, or, you know, um, how guys were feeling back then. And he wanted to, to produce a magazine that made that happen, and he did so through IPC Media. And there was a lot of doubt about whether it could sell and whether there was a place for it. And it was an infamous success story, and they massively exceeded those sales targets, and it became a real cultural linchpin. You know, through Enemy, he promoted the likes of the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream, and now through Loaded Oasis became a big part of that voice. Gary Oldman was on the, the cover of the first issue. Um, so for me, growing up in that era and being inspired by that cultural rush after some bad times in Britain, 
it was an absolute pleasure to talk to James, and I'm not going to sit here and bang on about it. We're going to get to it. Big thank you again to Illustration X, founding sponsor of the show. Go and hit them up on social media if you like, at We Are Illustration X. James is there, at James James Brown. So if you like what you hear, tell him, but also shout about it. Um, I'm not, I've not got anything else to add. It's a, it's a brilliant conversation, and I hope you enjoy it even 10% as much as I did, because I'm feeling re-energised off the back of it, and I hope you do too. I read an article... This was last week and it was about the big drop off in working class people in the arts and it being a broader reflection of society. And I'm seeing similarities with the current, you know, political landscape and the state of things at the minute to the time when you were starting out with your fanzine. Um, obviously a lot of differences as well, but I think there's a lot of disaffection and a lot of marginalisation of working class people. So, I mean, just, I just paint as a, a bit of a picture of your, you know, growing up childhood, like what you describe yourself as a lippy kid. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to knock around with a lot of lippy kids. What what did that look like? Was it a lot of time outdoors? Yeah, loads. Yeah. Um, every playtime, obviously, I was playing football and then getting home, you know, typical Thursday would be go out at half past, you know, walk, walk home from school when I was sort of in my, you know, sort of middle school years, walk back from Woodhouse to Headingley. Save the money to go to the bread shop, gets crisp sandwich from Ainsley's on the Arndale Centre, get back about four o'clock, play football till top of the pops. Maybe go in for 15 minutes for fish fingers and chips at like six o'clock or something. Yeah. And um, that was my childhood in full. Literally, fish fingers, chips, peas, maybe I might leave the peas. And playing football, kicking a, a ball against a gable end wall, you know, the terrace ends. Yeah. Um, or at weekends, going to Beckett Park and kicking a ball about there or going on a bike ride. In, and it was, I hung up, I was good at football when I was little, even though I was skinny. So I always hung out with a lot of older kids, you know. So the way to establish yourself, I found, was not only being good at football with them, but being funny and making them laugh. and and cheeky and aggressive so that was my outlook for my whole career really i ask because i just i think it's crucial when you've got that kind of chaos energy as a kid particularly the kids that were more extrovert than i was growing up it helps you work out your place in social groups and to, and to resolve disputes and all this stuff and i just worry about kids like that now with the internet and i and i just wonder if the whole fanzine stuff would have happened, not just for you, but I see it not happening for kids who have just got all these multitude of distractions, but no sense of identity. Do you know where I'm coming from? Well, I think, you know, like that, um, you know, that Times New Roadman. Do you follow him on Instagram? Oh, no. He just does really funny graphics and memes. And, um, you know, straight away, if you know anything about print or type, you know he's doing a play on Times New Roman. Yeah. So you think he's a funny guy. I've got a friend who got to know him when I said I've been following this guy and he he says he's a comedian. You know, that's how he sees himself as a comedian that uses the Internet. Mm. Um, so the digital platforms and the video platforms are perfect springboards for creative people. And the difference between the fanzine years is it's a media, it's far reaching. Um, you can do things that go beyond your control when things go viral. 
but it's also a very packed marketplace. You know, there are thousands, hundreds of millions of people wanting your attention. And uh, but if you're funny and you're creative, that independence and that creativity and that what you said is chaos, creative chaos. Um, <clears throat> it will draw no draw an audience. You know, because talent and particularly uh, people are doing things differently. It's, I think it's a lot easier to draw an audience now than it was in 1984 when I was leaving school. Mm. Um, and it was just going around, you know, it felt like I was just banging on doors or, you know, harassing people or entertaining people into buying my fanzine or, or kind of banging on doors trying to get work to be a music writer. Um, so, yeah, I think I wouldn't worry. <laughs> no, I mean, I think they're wholly brilliant things when used the right way. I mean, God, the fact that I'm able to sit here and do this now and then go and pick up my kids' from nursery later is just incredible. You know, so I think when you apply it in the right way, it's brilliant. But I just, I'm very interested by that thing of restriction, like the value of restriction. So for you in that fanzine world and in not such yeah. a crowded marketplace, did do you think that was something innately in you, that kind of drive to, to go out and do that? Because that, that door knocking would have cut a lot of people dead early on, I think. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the irony of that period was you've got, you know, the Tory government seemed like evil monsters to those of us that were, were living in environments where you could see the consequences of their behavior, of their, of their policies. And Norman Tebbit, it was a particularly odious looking man. He said, you know, people, if you want a job, you've got to get on a bike and go and look for a job. I mean, you know, you could have ridden from Leeds to Manchester or Sheffield or Hull. There was still no jobs. So it was just a fantasy that he was projecting. But the reality of it was there, there were there were people who had no choice. And when you talk about restriction is when you've got no choice, your only choice is the thing that you're passionate about. And so there were people that when I became successful later in life, some of whom I'd known when I was younger, uh, you know, people running record company, record, little record labels, putting their own records out in plastic bags, ended up with, you know, you know, heavenly records or creation records with, with some great bands. And there were people that were putting on little one-off gigs, ended up with huge, super amazing nightclubs. Um, and, you know, back, back to basics and, and so on. And, and then the same with people that I didn't know, like, Alexander McQueen, Lee McQueen. I think when I said him Animal House, when I saw him interviewed on the Frank Skinner show, he basically just told my story and Primal Scream story of those of us that were on the Enterprise Allowance, which was, you know, I think they gave you an extra five pounds a fortnight, and in return they took you off the dole numbers. So it looked like they were getting dole people down, but but what it gave us was a freedom to pursue those little cottage industries of fashion labels or fanzines or record labels or promoting gigs or indeed being in bands. And so it wasn't particularly always a great time. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on my own and I kind of, I knew people around the country who were, were like-minded, who wanted more than what was on offer. Um, but I think having no choice as you said, it, it sharpened the ambition. 
Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, because yeah, that's that's one big thing I've been writing about this book is, is adversity and the kind of the stuff that you will never choose and that is shit when you're going through it. But the, the benefits of that, which you have to have, have that kind of perseverance to find. And I talked to Alan McGee, who I know that also ran a fanzine around the time that you were doing Attack on Bazag. Yeah. Um, and Alan pointed to, I mean, to go to the sharp end of it, he pointed to the kind of, um, you know, being hit by his dad in childhood as something that, that that turned down the volume when he got to London. So what, you know, a music scene that might have freaked people out coming from different parts of the country was nothing to him because he'd been through a lot worse. And I found that really interesting in terms of putting stripes on on his <clears throat> courage. And, um, well, yeah, I knew Alan when I was 18, you know, and I just think what was obvious was that when he was doing his fanzine, he was putting flexi discs on the cover. So you'd get a, a flexi disc from the Pastels and Biff Bang Power, which was his band, and him and Andrew and his band uh, on the front of Communication Blur. And um, I think, I mean, I don't know what motivated him other than he really loved music and he loved discovering new bands. And initially his bands were very retrospective sounding. You know, they were quite 60s sort of post-birds, jangly sort of sounds. And then when he found the Mary Chain, which again was sixties influence, you know, it's very much, you know, the Velvet Underground, but from East Kilbride, that that suddenly seemed new. Um so he's an admirable figure because of his determination and his and his his passion to continue um helping develop new bands, you know. Mm. Um so I, I think that's always a good thing. And I, I you know, I don't have many regrets, but I wish I'd got a record label then. I did talk to a guy in Leeds about it called Mike Stout, who um, had a little publishing company called Cubic Music. And he Mike published some of those bands that were on creation around that time. You know, people and other bands, I think he published the Shop Assistants and some of those smaller indie bands. And I was finding a lot of bands and I just said, look, Mike, you know how to do this stuff. I know how to find the bands. Let's get a record label. And, um, you know, if we'd done that, we'd have probably, you know, done well. And the bands would have done well because the bands that I was finding, I was not long after that, I was able to put them on the front of Sounds and then NME. And mm. you know, I, saw, I saw the Happy Mondays at the Shine Festival in Minehead about six weeks ago. And uh, Mark Day guitarist just came up to me and said you made us which I, I put him right you know obviously i didn't make them i made them more well known mm. you know they were, but it would have been just as easy to find and promote bands and, and release them ourselves and yeah, i do wish i'd done that i had sean on the show because just by complete chance my dog and his dog were best mates in worsley <laughs> oh really yeah and uh, and joanne do you know joanne is that his wife? Yeah. I don't know her, but I've got the impression for a long time there's been somebody good around him. She's absolutely wonderful. And I think she manages him as a human and as, a, as an artist. Yeah. <laughs> and he talked about the influence of Tony Wilson and that Tony loved the kind yeah. of the prickly energy that they had and saw them more as a gang than a band and let them in a recording studio a long time before, they, in Sean's words, they were anywhere ready to be in that recording studio. But I love those kind of stories. And it, it takes me back to kind of art school and that ethos of, of fun and play and finding out. And it's a prominent theme in your own, not just your own story, but how you talk about loaded in the books or the, the promoting going to the pub and being in a relaxed, fun environment to generate ideas. Yeah. Do, you think that's something, do you think that's something perhaps lacking? Because there's a lot of um, 
it's a lot of bile and a lot of venom and, and division in today's societies for reasons that we could go on about, but I'm not going to now. Do you think it's something that's lacking and something that we need to return more value to? Um, what, not enough people going to the pub? Just yeah, just fun, just fun and play in creativity because I feel like yeah, there's it was a fun. Yeah, but like I say, I mean, a lot of fun plays out on, you know, TikTok and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. So I think it's more isolated. I think just go back to that thing about Tony Wilson, and then I'll come back to the fun. You know, if if you were like me, which there weren't that many people who were mouthy and ambitious. And really because it just there wasn't much to stay in Leeds for, you know, in Headingley. My mum was ill, my dad was doing his thing, he was doing his writing, and we didn't have much money, and there was like um you know, there wasn't much sort of to stimulate me or excite me, or you know, if I could have got a job, a normal if I'd gone to work in a park or been a anything, then it, it might have filled in that 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 space, but there wasn't anything to do. Um, so when you meet somebody like Tony Wilson and he's so cocky and flamboyant and full of amazing, he was a showman, really. He was a media showman. And any time you were with him, he was always on show and he was performing. And, you know, he would deliberately quote, you know, when I interviewed him, he was quoting Richard Branson and Sid Vicious. But it it, it could be, you know, a great artist. And he deliberately mixed up different references whether a businessman or an artist or a musician or an author he liked to show off his knowledge of highbrow and lowbrow culture and he was really inspiring and at the same time when i lived in manchester for that year and a half there were people who were really irritated by him um because he was like that uh, but i think for those people who wanted more whether it was you know people like john robb doing his fanzine or dave haslam doing his fanzine or, or maybe later noel wanting to have a band he was a sort of like this cocky show-off figure flamboyant figure that that was different and he was very inspiring um and then you know the best bit of advice tony gave me once i said to him why do you think certain bands on factory worked and others didn't and you know worked in terms of commercial success and popularity so obviously new order Joy Division, the Happy Mondays, and the first James singles uh, were all good examples of bands that worked, and the Mondays. And then there were other bands that were equally independently creative. And he said to me, it's the ones that let the people who I employ for the record design. The ones who leave the designers to design the record sleeves are usually the ones that get on, because they understand that other people are better at doing things than they are. And I thought that was a brilliant, um, you know, it's a brilliant vision of how to collaborate with people, you know, and um, and understanding other people's strengths and being able to, you know, like Peter Saville gets all the credit for the for the radio waves, but Bernard told me that he found that in a library, you know, in yeah. Manchester Library when he was looking for images for record sleeves, and then he gave it to Saville. So, but you don't hear Bernard saying, "Oh, that was my graphic," because he understands that. Peter Saville for the for New Order and Joy Division. And then the same with the Mondays with Central Station, who, who did absolutely brilliant sleeves. Both those bands' sleeves don't look like any other band's sleeves. And, and, and that combination of being able to work with people who are very um, independent and fiercely creative in their own right 
and just let them get on with it is key to the second part of your question, I think. At Loaded, um, I didn't I didn't really write about at length in Animal House about the influence of the time I spent when I was managing a band, but because I thought I'll pull it out for the next book, but the freedom and the creativity and the lack of success that was going on with that band, it was such a fucking good laugh. Mm. That's what it was. The enemy wasn't a good laugh. The enemy was a brilliant place to work and it was a funny place to be at times, but it was incredibly intense, incredibly competitive. I was incredibly wound up in terms of trying to make the paper really good. And also the things that I wrote about, about what was going on in my family life. And, but hanging around with these guys, <laughs> just fucking about, just being relaxed, doing what I think a lot of people do at college. It was it was good fun and and then so when I got the chance to do loaded I I wanted to capture that that energy and that sort of um, that sense of fun that I'd have and and so I deliberately when I started employing people I, I try to think of people that I knew who were funny and good at what they did and, and and interesting characters so I deliberately set out I mean I handpicked everybody on the team from. You know, Tim and Mick, who were the first people that I employed through to, you know, the last, you know, Reese, who would be the fashion assistant. And um, they were all, I wanted people who had personality and character. I wanted people who hadn't fitted, you know, I was, I realized that people were coming to us who didn't fit in and they hadn't really established themselves elsewhere. I mean, it really was like when you see Lee Marvin putting the Dirty Dozen together. Yeah. Only, you know, we weren't going off to kill anyone. We were just going off to get drunk and make people laugh. Um, and, and that was, I used to, when I did my business talks, I used to talk about that a lot, about the assembling the team uh, and empowering them. I mean, you know, they all end up thinking they started the magazine, which they obviously didn't. Um, but it was just empowering them to let them have this freedom within the framework that I'd created. And and then just being in because I mean at the very first editorial meetings I was riding around on a bike, waving a, a golf club around, smoking grass. <laughs> and it wasn't. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a sort of cuntish thing to do, but I was just having a laugh. You know, I was just continuing the fucking about that I'd done with Fabulous. And it wasn't like a magazine from the off. I wanted it to be like when I was on tour with the Mondays, and I wanted it to be like. The books, the two books I read about the Stones at the end of the 60s and the start of the 70s, STP and uh, Dancing with the Devil, those two books really informed what I just thought looked like heaven, really. So the environment created the product and the people created the magazine. Totally, totally, absolutely. And then pushing it to extremes was, was good, but also having the creative discipline within that within the fucking around having so there were people who were very good on the magazine at what they did like john wilde was a really great interviewer and a really really funny fast turnaround writer so john was an important member of the team um who never gets any credit and he i mean his interviews every month were just must read you know whether he was interviewing alexander o'neill or um damon alban or, or whoever it was mainly musicians or maybe you know occasionally actors like oliver reed or 
or old footballers like Stan Bowles. Um, you know, having talent as well as chaos created a successful um, situation. Well, it disarms people, doesn't it? If you're interviewing people who've got reputations or used to being interviewed, it, it helps to disarm. If they can sense that you're there for the right reasons and it's in tune with who you are and who that team is, then that just facilitates that collaboration. And if everyone's enjoying it, then those ideas flow. Like you say, you've got to have that balance of, of getting the job done and everyone being good at what they do. Yeah. But I think it's a great lesson for anyone because I know a lot of people who fall out of love with what they do, whatever their art form is, because they're either in the wrong environment or they're not surrounded by the right people or they're isolated. And, and I've been there myself. I mean, you know, I, I just that's why I just love that period of art school because when you describe that scene there of you on a bike with a golf club, I think it's, you know, 10 versions of that within those within them college rooms. And the good tutors were the ones who didn't try and nip that. Don't get me wrong, they'd give you a bollocking if it was the wrong time, the wrong place, but they, they would let that be because they knew that energy was really valuable. And I think it's critical. I think it's critical to ideas. And I think that we could do with just a little bit more of that in today's world. Like you say, maybe you guys did push it to an extreme, but then that's right for you at that time. So it's right, you know? But you know what? Now, I don't know what graphic design studios look like in the, in the early 90s. But I've been working with some guys up in Huddersfield on something I might do. Um, and their office looks like the classic Shoreditch. Oh, it's probably like Walthamstow London design studio. You know, it's full of like retro football shirts and, um, you know, small Japanese toys of, of television icons, you know, public enemy toys and Mr. T and... Yeah. And like old vintage games and stuff, and basically, you know what they, what people do in the in the certainly in the graphic design world and the creative and that ad world, is they recreate their bedrooms. The loaded office didn't look like that. We weren't trying to create recreate our bedrooms so that we could do adult work. We were behaving like we were as kids, doing kids work really. We weren't making, we weren't sort of trying to capture an environment to, so that we can present ourselves as employable to, to industries. We were just like, I mean, we, after issue three, Alan never came down, my boss. I mean, I used to see him at publishing meetings or we'd go for lunch every now and then, but he just left, left us on with it. And the thing that I refer to in the book is those documentaries where they put kids in a house for a weekend or you know and loads of food and and you did just destroy i mean the loaded office the it was fucked. <laughs> there's one photo in the book that kirsty who was one of our young writers took and somebody said was this after a party and it wasn't it was just after we went back after the pub which was it had that element the office had that sort of student household or low-income band living together household of there were broken fans all over hanging around the office there were you know there was there was fucking bags of crisps everywhere opened and on a, i mean somebody said when they commented on that photograph of the office in chaos there's open drink there <laughs> and it's like yeah and if you spun around you'd probably see 240 crates of beer yeah, <laughs> and if you walk into my office, you'd see like fifteen half-drunk bottles of of different types of vodka. They weren't drunk. They weren't not drunk because 
the people weren't capable of drinking them. There was just so much drink in the office mm. that, that, the, that the alcohol industry was sending us to end up with pictures of us holding it in the magazine. That it really was. I mean, it was like a it was like a fucking kindergarten. The, the loaded office. It was like a the cleaner. We accident. We think we killed the cleaner by accident. <laughs> it was an African guy used to come in. He was a really lovely guy. And it was the most unlikely culprit who was responsible. I came in one day and the office would notice that things normally got done at the end of the day hadn't been done. I said, where's that? Where's the singing African guy gone? And Mick Bonnet said, oh, I'm worried that I've poisoned him. I said, why? And he said, because we'd done this paintballing job and we'd, I don't know why we'd got them, but we'd bought a, a dustbin, a plastic dustbin bag full of paintballs and, and paint, the paintballs look really like bubblegum. You know, they were bright, shiny, orange and red and green and so on. And um, apparently Mick, had, this guy, he didn't speak English, he'd come in and he was putting it in his, he thought there was a big, big bin full of sweets. And oh, Mick said, no. yeah, yeah, have, to have them. Mick didn't know what he was talking about. And he just came back in with paint down his mouth and he never came back. <laughs> you know well, no one came banging on the door for it. I don't think Mick would have deliberately, you know, killed the cleaner. It's just that he used to come to work very late, Mick, and he for other people, you know, which again wasn't an issue. You know, he just he was always on on his time. You know, arriving at like twelve o'clock and leaving at seven or eight. Yeah. So he was he was normally still in there writing, you know, his columns when the cleaners were there. <laughs> but the rest of us would only be in the office at eight. In production week yeah there's a, there's a really i love the um there's a lot of timing and a lot of i don't want to call it luck because yeah, we just, i think it was on the square ball podcast you did we described luck as uh, ambition makes opportunity which is perfect yeah and i've been this is something i've been looking at a lot recently and, and the role of chance because no matter what you do in life chance is a big part of it but um but there's just a great stretch of timing whether it's starting to lead mag on the upward curve of that era and of course loaded when the cultural shift in britain happens um i wonder do you think it's harder to get a grasp on the kind of zeitgeist and the cultural thing now because we're exposed to so much of it i i don't know i mean i, I can't ever answer these sorts of questions with any uh clear conviction because i'm 57. Mm. you know the zeitgeist now sounds like a bauhaus album <laughs> It does, doesn't it? <laughs> the idea of what is, I mean, I, I've got a 21 year old son and he seems to be having a great time, you know, and him and his mates have, they got festivals, they got clubs, mm. you into football. I mean, it's a similar sort of stuff I was into when I was 21. And, and, um, I, and I always think I find I have conversations with older people, you know, people out 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and, there's this worry that actually things have changed and what's changed is their lives have changed. Yeah. You know, and we, and, and maybe some people don't realize that, but you know, on Facebook the other day, this woman I know lives in Spain said she put a little video or a photograph of herself up as a child with a homemade crown that she'd made without a paper, you know, and glitter for Christmas. Mm. She said, when, when did we saw, when did we stop making these? And I was like, literally, I'd gone to the playground that day to pick up my nine-year-old son and all the kids were wearing them. Mm -hmm. People don't stop doing this stuff. People just get older. 
Yeah. And it, instead of making a crown full of glitter and a bad drawing of a star, you, you're paying a bill or a mortgage or you're dealing with a, a leak in your house or you're trying to get a different job or you just have different priorities, you know. I mean, I mean having said that, I think maybe I might go and make a crown, you know, today because it's yeah. it's important to keep making keep doing that stuff you know it's uh and yeah. being creative but you know generationally it's important for different generations to interact so for instance i think a great example of somebody who operates in their own space with their own creativity is that guy mr bingo oh he's fantastic who's on mr bingstagram yeah and mr bingo on twitter and i don't know the guy but he wanted a copy of my book um and i'd seen David Hockney had written to him and asked him for some, I don't know whether they were like beer mats or some graphics. And I can't remember if it was about being bored or... Bored of wellness. It was what? Bored was, of wellness. Yeah. yeah. You know, that idea that that um, Hockney can find that stuff. And then, and I mean, it must have been so thrilling for Mr. Bingo to get a, a letter or whatever it came, an email from David Hockney. It must have, I mean, that's a generational change in moment i mean that that would be even though he's an adult it might be a similar experience to when john peel would read out my reviews yeah but my fanzine you know but it would be or another moment for me was going sending it the other way was um i've got i don't know how i don't know what the connection was but um there's an american writer called tim cahill who wrote a lot about for a magazine called outdoors and he wrote a lot of books about sort of enduring hardship um and sort of outdoors type stuff and um it, it, he wrote a book that helped get me writing again after my mum died called road fever and i saw him on face i saw he'd replied to somebody i know on facebook or, or instagram or something and i just said look i just wanted to tell you that when my mum died in 1992 i'm a writer and when my mum died in 92 i was just shut down and your book and two others that your publisher sent me just totally inspired me to get going again and it, it picked me up and he you know and he just he just replied i can't tell you how important or how great it was to get that message today it, it, it inspiration can go up and down and i think you know you know people um maybe people don't realize that but i think he's really inspiring that guy because he does his own thing yeah. And I like the fact that he's reading my book on a beach in Sri Lanka and yeah. enjoying it, you know. And he's brilliant. And he back, his story's fantastic, you know, the way he started. Have you seen his um, hate mail book, you know, his postcards? Yeah, I don't know anything about him other than he's just one of those. You know what? Before with the internet, sometimes I would find people who were different and they were creative or they were, you know, I remember going to an, an art, what's it called at the end of year show that art schools have and finding this guy and he was just at this his work was little black ink messages on sheets of paper and they were they were great i remember taking them into tony tony elliott who ran time out and said tony you should put these in every week they're yeah. really funny i just he said who is he i said just some i knew somebody who was in the college you know and uh so then he passed them on to the editor and the editor didn't want to do it but you know you just nowadays it, it doesn't stay as a scrap of paper on the wall of an of an art studio at a college you stick them online and you end up 
if you put the right thing on the right product, selling it, and then that's how the creative meets the commercial. Well, this is it, and Mr. Bingo's a master of that. And I mean, so basically, what he did, it was a drunken joke with his mates, where he used to abuse them on the back of a vintage postcard and send it to them. He'd illustrate some lewd scene and an abusive message, okay. and people started seeing it, and and he started doing it at a tenner a pop. And it, it went. It got to the point he couldn't handle the demand, so he had to cut off the service. At which point, Penguin picked him up for a book deal with all these hate mail postcards. There's just one that just says it's just like dear Charlene, shit chin, and it's just got a it's got a drawing of this really tiny chin jowls, yeah. and it's just it's brilliant. And um, you know, modern toss were like that. You know, they were Mick and John who do modern toss. They were important members of the loaded staff from the very beginning. You know, like I said, Mick was like the third person to join the team and um and and john was like one of the i think he was the last of the launch team to join and but the stuff that they did in loaded like office pest which was just clip art and it predated really what tim was doing to gareth in the office putting his stapler in the jelly he was just a you know a lot, you know the guy was just a kind of a, like an office sociopath and that was really popular. And then, you know, then later going on and doing their other, their own cartoons for themselves. I think the first thing they did together as a collaboration was if biscuits were people. Yeah. It was just, just genius, you know, putting Lou Reed's head next to a chocolate digestive <laughs> and then writing a sentence about it. And we, we used to have a lot of things like that in, in Loaded that the people who didn't know the magazine, who just got the shorthand of it, you know, oh, it's lads or it's girls or whatever. They wouldn't have seen all that, but the readers absolutely loved it. And, you know, that's the reason why their cartoon empire, Modern Toss, stretches from The Guardian, A Private Eye, to independent uh, card shops. And, you know, mm. I put the exhibition on with them with my then, with my former girlfriend who works in art. It took like 60 grand. Well, the boys did, you know, they 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 did took most of it. And the, what was interesting was they understood that you could have something for like a pound, which was a badge or something, and it went all the way up at you know at financial intervals to fifteen thousand pounds for the huge model of a fly. <laughs> you know, and I got Damien Hurst to, to to buy a few pieces, and Stephen Fry bought some pieces, and. You know, people who you would think, oh, well, they're creatively successful. Again, another example of new talent emerging and developing. And people, I mean, we had thousands of, we we did, we put, we kept the exhibition on for another week. There were thousands of people came through the exhibition. And that, that environment, that, I mean, I don't even know whether they are ever in, they must be in the same room when they do their work. But it's very simple. They just, they've got similar like like-minded outlooks and they can both draw um so you kind of you don't know it's like lennon and mccartney of like rude cartoons you know you don't know when i look at them i don't know if it's one of them has written it or they've both written it because they've got a communal voice yeah i think that's what we developed at loaded we kind of in a way we had a a communal self-deprecating voice that that became the language that that people tended to write in Mm. yeah that collaboration and that overlap is i mean god it's fine i've got relationships like that, my own guy who does photography when i do book covers and stuff and he's just it's just the synchronicity is really valuable and i miss it when it's not there you know we, we had this 
I did a book called Stories for the Apocalypse, and it's it's very dark, real world, behind the curtains kind of humour look on society. And he went, look, you've just got to trust me, but we're going to go up to a national this national park up outside Preston, bring a bring a sheet with aisles in it, and just trust me. <laughs> That's the brief that I got. And I thought, yeah. okay. He knows me well enough that I've just got to implicitly trust this. And he absolutely nailed it. He wanted to sort of hint at the supernatural or make sure that these horrible legs were on show underneath this sheet. They just made it look like it was a lunatic and not anything yeah. to do with ghosts. And best photo shoot I've ever worked on. And I laughed the entire day. And it was just, you can't, that's amazing. Well, I think that was that's an important word, what you said there about laughing, because at Loaded every day, we were just laughing all day. I mean, it was just... There was, it was fun. It was a funny place to be. You were funny people. And I was just reading earlier a, a, a little book that George Lois, who did the, who was an ad guy in America, who did the great Esquire covers that so many people tried to replicate in the 60s, that people tried to replicate, like Muhammad Ali as full of the arrows and um, I think Warhol sitting in a can of beans. And... He was saying that when you have creativity in a commercial environment, you have to push it, push it to almost the point of insanity. Wow. Which I just thought was fucking great that if you are absolutely sure about a strong idea, just push it and push it and push it. You know, maybe we did a look to do a loaded spin-off book once, or maybe it was in the magazine. Just we had an empty page, and I just put a, I got a yellow post-it and wrote, put something here and stuck it on the page and photographed it, you know. And I just last week I was looking at some magazines. On Monday, on Tuesday I was looking at some magazines in the Photographer's Gallery in London, and that sort of fashion magazine, Tank, they've got stickers embossed on the cover. And I try to peel one off to see if it actually somebody, because they're in different places. Yeah. So some of them are the same stickers in the same place, but I was flicking, you know, that's sort of six of the same issue. I, I like that. I thought it looked great, you know. Um, I loved it when one of my favourite magazines covers was a magazine that really wasn't very contemporary. It was retrospective, which was Mojo magazine, yeah. and they did a special on uh, they did a special on the Ramones, and they, and they used a technique which is called for for covers called die cut, where they where they, they they actually they had a slightly heavier paper or a card for the cover, and then they cut. In this case, it was the gaps in the frayed knees of their of their bleached Le Levi denims. Nice. So, so, it, so the whole front of the magazine looked like a Ramon's leg, and then you could through it, you could see the the the, the page. You know, you you turn it, and the the cut the holes was there. And you know that I think one of the first times that was used to great success was in the original James Bond paperbacks. They, they would put bullet holes in them. You know that idea of fucking around with it is something that you should do. I and mean, you know, I think the best things we did like that were loaded was finishing the page, so the page was ready, and then putting a cigarette out on it, stubbing it out, and throwing beans and sweets over it so it looks like it's been ruined, and then photographing it again, and then using that on the page or burning a hole putting the page over the page that would be the next page and then photographing it again so you can see through it rather than actually having a whole cut. Um, just, you know, there were lots of little things like that that just conveyed the language of that we didn't really give a fuck. But obviously we'd spent quite a lot of time executing that. 
but not it didn't take a lot of time to come up with the idea you know the idea was just like let's do this yeah and that's partly out of the only bit that bored me in the magazine was writing the editor's letters page because i thought it was pompous you know the, the the editor's letter should be the cover lines you know you should know what you're getting from the outside of the mag you don't need somebody to say hey welcome to the new issue uh, this month a very important photographer has taken time from his very busy schedule <laughs> and, and taken some important photographs of some important actor uh, <sighs> because she's got a new film out for an important publisher for an important advertiser who've also you know taken the back page out in an ad and you know just a, a page of i mean it's nice to give credit to people but oh and this month we've been doing this and that and it was tedious as fuck you know i just didn't i used to hate writing the contents on the nme you know that was something i used to when i was first there they used to give me the contents to write and it was just like fucking hell it's just it's not like it's a book yeah paper <laughs> they're just gonna scan through it quickly they'll find the nick cave interview mm. you know, find the carl cox review it's like well yeah the, the the victory you know the covers you sent me that no gallagher one's stunning and and, all, and the liam one the gq one the, and you mentioned it yourself the lack of eye contact in there it's just your, your job's for me your job's done when that's made the cover and it's making that strong statement it says there's a lot more than you could ever say in that format. what was great with that oasis one was um th i mean that's a really good example of the relationship with a creative with an art director because tony Tony Chambers was the art director at GQ when I got there, and he later became the editor of Wallpaper. And I saw him the night before his interview for Wallpaper. I said, you should apply for the job. You're always telling me what to do. You'd be really good at it. And he did, and he got the – he said, I'm being interviewed tomorrow. But I can remember – Tony had a great – although he would come from the Sunday Times and was was a, was a very – was really interested in, and very good at design, he had a great sense of humour, and he liked the idea of doing things that fucked things up and that were different and um you know for things like that where i would say what about that one that that no one's ever done the cover like that he would just go brilliant that's a great idea let's do it or or he would then subsequently bring ideas to me and go what do you think about this and it uh, you know it was you know sometimes you can work with art directors that are just too controlling you know yeah, yeah. There's, um, a, there's a lot of service in the expected i think now because we're maybe it's because I don't know. I did not, I talked to an art director recently who lamented the kind of reliance on Pinterest and Google Images and that kind of replication of a, a thing that's done. You know, the idea that someone who's trying to design a book cover goes and looks at a lot of other book covers rather than pulling an idea from some completely disconnected sphere. Yeah. You know, I'd and say that my football book that I did before Animal House above head height that got quite a literal illustration of it was like clip art or something. I didn't like it at all. And I got another book. And I got a book out and I said, that's what my book cover should look like. Yeah. And it came back, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, they got a brilliant. So sometimes, I mean, lots oh. of times it, throughout film, especially particularly in film, you see scenes that are based on other things and graphics and photography. You see, st I mean, you know, the famous shot of uh, Captain Beefheart by Anton Corbin holding the hat on his stomach, you know if you just if you just head back a few months you'll see mick jones with the same hat on his stomach by penny yeah. smith you know and whether that was deliberately or not or just you know yeah. um, don't get me wrong there's always a there's always a place for it but you know the overriding just just that 
there's a there's one i did a show recently i did a, a show with andrew cotrell and a music photographer and andy's been working for about 30 years now and to get access to his archive and to, to do exactly what you said there to look at all them reels and those unused shots that no one's ever yeah. seen you know the, the the 29 images from the 30 where they used the one on the cover of q or whatever it was and he had, he's got this iconic shot and it's the strokes from when they first started and he was telling me what a pain in the ass they were because they're just leaping on each other's backs and just one hyperactive teenagers at the time and but he's got this amazing shot where all four of them's laying on a bed and it's just from the waist down so you just got the skid the levi's and the converse and it's just to, you know to have the balls to not show the faces at such a formative stage in their career but at the same power. time i mean that's the back of parallel lines yeah the back, that's that's the exact description of the back of parallel lines and you're wondering whose shoes are which member because yeah. on the front you can see the front but you know what that's interesting what you're saying about work that people don't use because we had this sense of uh, self-deprecation and irreverence that loaded you know sometimes you'd get you get features sent over pictures sent over and i remember particularly the photographer walking in that the, the, um, the picture editor walking in or the art director walking in and saying look at this it was a picture of rem three of them holding the letters e r and m in so it said um yeah and i said that's <laughs> just it was just brilliant you know and then that's what we used on the spread but that that was from a session that had been done for somebody like q or rolling stone and hadn't been used yeah it, it was an image that hadn't been used and i think that Somebody said to me once, and a few different editors said this, they said, when I read Loaded, I just see all the funny headlines and the captions that we all write, but we just do it as placeholders rather than actually giving it out to the world, which I think that's slightly fanciful, you know, thinking. Because, But at the same time, I knew what they meant. You know, if you just have to write any old stuff in. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I think the, probably the peak of that came, which – is the graphic that's on the back page of of of, of the cover of, of of Animal House was that was my that was on there because it was my favourite ever page from Loaded because the production editor came in and he said we need the next issue box now what have we got for the next issue and I looked around my desk and I got a water pistol that Sir Paul Smith gave me there was some um, that sort of oil of cloves tooth gum number because the coat was fucking my mouth up so much. And there was a, a Barcelona Sabutio player and a Lemsip. And I said, just scan all them and write. Then the next issue, Sabutio, water pistols, da-da-da-da-da. But that's right, we haven't got a clue, but something will show up. <laughs> and it, it just, you know, it resolved the problem and uh the page got sent away and the graphics looked really strong but that was the best for me that was the best ever page in in loaded because it it was the page that most represented how we worked of leaving everything to the last minute but most people that leave everything to the last minute cover that up yeah when they're delivering work whether it's as an employer or for a freelancer or a client they they cover up the chaos and the and the slapdash nature of what they're particularly might not most people but lots of people who who aren't particularly well organized or leave things to the end everything's about hiding that but by showing it there was an identification you know people thought 
this is what I'm like, but they're honest about it and they're actually open. Yeah. So people warmed to it for that. They people saw themselves in the magazines, you know, and that that sort of honesty. Yeah, well, I mean, it was equal, you know, equal parts, things like that are equal parts personality in a sense that this isn't just for you, that this is going on, this is a part of culture. And I think that's, um, they're the things that people overlook and t and try to try to think what, well, you know, I don't know, I think in terms of sales or expected by whoever they're delivering the content to, I think that's, it's a classic mistake, isn't it? I mean, you know, it does the thing feel alive, you know. You know, what's really important is, and which I don't personally do enough of at all is people that do things for themselves, you know, that do their own projects and do their own creative things. You know, I mean, once you get involved in the commercial world, you, you, you kind of, you, you can become sort of, mag, you know, connected and magnetized and just attached to the commercial world. But people that I've worked with who go off and do their own things are often the ones that then move forward you know, and regenerate themselves. So, like, I remember walking along the canal and uh, with my dog and they're getting a call, and it was from one of the loaded photographers, a guy called Steve Pike, and he said, I've got some news. And the way he said it was, I thought he was going to say he had cancer or something like that. I said, what is it, Steve? And he said, I've just been given an MBE. This is whilst we were... You know, this is when we were doing the magazines, not long after Loaded had finished. I think I'd just was starting my own company, IFG. So this would have been about two, the year 2000 or 2001 or something like that. I said, how the fuck have you got an MBE? Or whatever it was, a KBE, an OBE, whatever. And he was like, because I just knew that he, you could send him to take a picture of Mark Smith, you know, in the enemy cover that he shot with my story. He made Mark Smith stand in a stream so he could get the background right. Or if he went and photographed um, Frank Skinner or, or, or Damon Albarn or somebody for Loaded, it would be really usable as a cover. So I had no concept that he photographed anything other than musicians and actors. And he said, oh, I've just been doing this project with veterans of the First World War for quite a while now. And I think it's because of that. I think somebody within that world has seen the work and recommended me. But... You know, doing your own thing changes things. There's a great guy called Alex Godfrey who works in my film Mad Hot Dog. Mm. Alex been doing this art. I mean, for a while he was putting these drawings up that looked a little bit like Vic Reeves's sort of naive single line ink drawings. And and I, I imagine Alex would be a big fan of of, of uh, Vic and Bob. So I could see the influence there, or Spike Milligan's drawings and things like that. But he's doing these. He's doing these graphics at the moment. I think he's called Mr. Godfrey or Mr. Godfrey Says on Instagram. And um, he's doing these sort of AI graphics where he's putting elephants into army uniforms. And then they look, he's making them look, even though the uniforms are quite futuristic, they're like photo montages. They look like the shots from that film, um, uh, what is D-Day? Mm. he's got elephants in army uniforms sitting in landing craft and you're not sure if it looks a little bit star wars or a little bit you know the beaches in normandy i'm just looking at this work he's doing and then he did all these other things where he was putting bjork into star wars and it's fucking amazing looking i'm thinking where's this come from 
Yeah. Well, it's just like I'm a, I always just, but I know that Alex has always done his own thing. You know, when we hired him for Hot Dog, we hired him because he worked in the Prince Charles Cinema, and the writing that he submitted whilst he was working in the office and selling the tickets and put, um, being the office boy at the in this cinema was the previews that went on their website. You know, he was doing his own thing, and but just those people that operate on their own and, and are able to. And I suppose Mr. Bingo is a really good example and modern toss is another example where they can just get on and do their own creativity and then, then use the internet to promote it. Or Steve with his photography, having your own passion that you do and, and actually pursuing it is vital in, in, in moving yourself forward in life and changing what the outcome of your life is going to be. I've got so many unfinished ideas. And I've seen things come out that I've got. Why didn't I do that when I was first thought of it four years ago? Now someone else has done it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's vital. It's, it's, it's critical, and it is. I mean, I think, and it's, it's just it's a constant theme in your own story. You know, your the, your personality and drive is is there. It comes across in these different ways, but it lives in the end product. And I think it does. It resonates with people. I mean. Some of the I've got these. I sent you some of the pictures actually, but they're Leeds United scrapbooks. I've got still got the back end of the '96, the terrible '96, '97 season, which is actually one of my favourites because of the that formative age of fourteen. And was it was '86 or '96 or '96. So George Graham's like kind of tidying okay. things and oh, yeah. five nil nils in a row. But that was magic to me, and there's that magic, despite how shit the pasted graphics are. It's you know, in my four scrapbooks chronicling that season, and then the first Hasselbank season. That was my that was me playing with graphic design. I had no idea at the time that that's what I was doing. But it's that that kind of started to give me this sense that there might be an industry doing this stuff, and 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 it does. That spirit lives in it when you're passionate about it, you know. Yeah. But didn't the guy you know you know Peter Jackson? I've not seen those things like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It isn't, didn't he have that film called Bad Taste that took him up four yeah. years to make? Because whenever I saw big features with him, when he became super number one Hollywood director, I was thinking, is this that dude who made that thing with the heads exploding in New yeah. Zealand? Because there didn't seem to be any reference to it. But that was like a real big, I mean, I should have put that in loaded. That was one of those things that was passed around and that people would see that was just kind of common common creative uh, output that predated things like you know reservoir dogs or whatever that was extreme you know yeah oh it was completely cult those films yeah and like you say we're complete about face but then that that's the same thing. guy yeah absolutely the same guy yeah does he not talk about it or have i just missed it i think he does but i don't i don't know how frequent but yeah and i was i was because i was mad into lord of the rings when it came out when i was a teenager but he yeah he was People started pointing that out to me. It took a while to actually process that was the same director. But yeah, that was his stuff. There were some blokes in Bradford that used to make films like that. I forget their name, but I did a page on Loaded about them. It was they had the word orange in the title, and it was their own kung fu films, and they were really funny. They were obviously influenced by the creation of Bad Taste because they were just making them in the spare time, you know. Yeah. Funny <laughs> thing about that is like the actors change, you know, they look different, even though it's obviously the same person. Yeah, which I, which I like, you know, because it's like when you sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm not really been on the radio much lately, but when I was on the radio a few years ago, I was on the radio every week. If the phone went off, you know, if somebody's mobile went off, the producers would freak out, and I'd be staring at you. And I go, I go, what? Like, 
you think people's phones don't go off when they're at work just because yeah. you're on the radio you want me to turn it off and they'll be looking through this through the window going no, no i'd answer it yeah you know if you're doing a if you're doing um a public i leave my phone on if i'm ever doing any public speaking because mm. it's a fucking great icebreaker yeah but when i was doing that talk at shine there was only like 60 people watching but my decorator rang up tim <laughs> You know, he's a mate, you know, it's not just really a decorator, he's my foot play football with him, but he I was like, it was funny. It's funny when things go wrong. I mean, comedians know this. They make they make things go wrong when they're doing their act, you know, if it, yeah. if it's a if it's a pre-learned act. Yeah. You, I see, know. you see him the next night and they've, they've done it wrong again. And it's on the book, when I did the audio book, I just started laughing reading out because I'd never actually when I finished read writing Animal House. It was written in different passages and then kind of roughly assembled into a running order. Yeah. And it was only two big structural changes. Originally, the beginning was going to be in the middle. And I was going to start, I think, with the acid at the awards or something like that. I was going to start with something really extreme and then and, and put the bit uh, and, and so change it slightly around like that. But I'd never read it. I'd never read the book. So then when I sat down to read the audio book, that was the first time I ever read it from beginning to end. And it was a very painful process writing it because I was worried about how it was going to be received. And um, also I was worried about opening up about my mum's my illness and stuff. I'd never done that in public. And, and mixing that in with stories about being in, you know, off with Sean Ryder in Brazil, I did wasn't sure how that would sit, and so when I actually read the audio book, I started laughing at some of the stupidity that we'd perpetrated, uploaded. It was making me laugh thinking about it because there were stupid ideas often, you know, like let's go and roll around in the lakes and the mud in Wimbledon Common and test washing powder, which <laughs> does which does wash white. There were stupid things which make great content and great pages. As I was laughing, I turned to um, James Nick Nicholson, who, James Nichol, who was re recording it. James, and he, I just said, he said, oh, should we do that again? I said, leave it in. It's funny. He yeah. said, what do you mean? I said, just leave it in. It'll, it'll be good. It sort of breaks the fourth wall. It's funny. And he said, okay, I'll put a mark and I'll tell him to leave it in. And and that's the audio books sold thousands of copies, you know, and it's and it's people telling each other. Yeah. This is great. The guy starts laughing. You know, the guy reading it starts laughing halfway through. And it's, um, you know, I get it constantly that, it, that people, even now, you know, three or four months after it came out, people telling me that they enjoyed that that irreverent. I loved it. I, I, I did the audio book because I'm a like reasonable, a recent father to twins. So my, my reading, my paperback reading time had been reduced for that reason. Yeah. So dog walks, walks into town, audio books has become my, my primary reading. And I loved that. I loved that irreverence because it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's you and it's your book. So if you can't leave that stuff in, then it goes against everything you did, surely. But it is, it's just funny and it lightens it and, it and it's more human, you know, to hear you cracking up at them stories. It made me laugh as I'm walking through town. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of that. People saying, I'm laughing out loud at you laughing at your own book. I'm walking <laughs> Or I'm jogging along the seafront. People must think I'm mental. I'm just keep laughing. But the funniest one was this guy, this guy, now David, um, he he said he was in the dentist having some 
work done and he messaged me he said my dentist is going to buy your book because i was listening to the audio book when when he was doing the operation in the teeth and i kept laughing he, and he said it was the first time i'd ever heard anyone laughing whilst the dentist would be there what are you, what are you listening to and the dentist went off and bought it so that was like great marketing you know mm. Yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't it? What what can get word of mouth? But that, I think that's fantastic. But but on a, on a more serious note as well, I think it's really great that you were as open as you were about you know the the sad way in which your mum passed. Because I've done a lot of work around mental health and and more male suicide with calm. Uh, and I know you mentioned Andy's Man Club on previous podcasts, which is also a really great thing. But yeah. I think in terms of the trajectory of time from the kind of loaded days to now one of the big positives culturally and socially has got to be that the thawing of those conversations around mental health surely yeah i was um i was nervous about that i actually after about the football book i went back to the publishers and that did pretty well sold just under ten thousand copies and and i said i want to write a book about suicide because there isn't one that i would read about the impact of what it's like to have a close family member commit suicide and, and and what it happens afterwards and i want to talk to other people who've been through it and i was and i was assembling a list of people that i either knew or knew of and they didn't i think they thought it was too heavy you know they said we kind of want you your memoir and your music and publishing stories and then when I was talking about having ideas that not executing and other people and then further down a few years down the line I know that that um, musician Professor Green made a documentary about his father committing suicide and then Calm I used to know the woman that ran Calm when it was first launched um, it, it just became a, um, a talking point and a more awareness about suicide and, and that's an example of where something I didn't do something similar later happened I'm glad that it happened you know it became I, I don't see her thinking oh I wish I'd I was going to call it for those that are left behind but um I'm, I'm glad that other people have, have started to talk about that now and um and do things around it but it was made it incredibly difficult it was incredibly difficult to write that that, mm. that stuff and and then talking about it i did a talk at our house in london and the audience was like 28 women and two guys and i don't know if it was because it was women that i found i was able to open up more about my mom and the impact it had on our family her death and um it was you know it it's just very personal stuff you know and it's not something i was to be honest i was fucking terrified of it coming out yeah. i didn't care about the drug recovery because i've spoken about that many many times to other people who have needed some guidance or advice or um or whatever who want to hear stories that you can get through addiction and alcoholism and, and get a different life and um but the personal stuff i mean it's just there you know as a teenager you know the the shame that surrounded the fact that my mum was in the mental hospital whose name was used as a term of abuse at school mm. it's very difficult and the silence that 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 existed in and even after her death we didn't really talk about it much in the family um 
so that was difficult you know it was difficult but the response has been very surprising i've had so many people write to me and say you know whether it was about a different form of illness or mental illness or addiction or domestic violence i've had lots of different probably about maybe 10 to 15 different people have got in touch um either at events or or through social media in the private messaging and i didn't anticipate that at all and they've just said that you know it helped to read somebody else opening up about it yeah. um, so that is a benefit you know if that's probably the most important element of the book and yeah. i thought that i thought the most important for me i thought the most important elephant elephant <laughs> the most important elephant is dumbo the most important element was just that maybe some people might read that i'd managed to get over my drink problem my drug use uh, and you know become a functioning member of society and become a parent and that's what i thought might be the takeaway for people i'd never considered that other people might have felt that that silence and shame and isolation around having a family member in a, in a way that you were unable to help i think it's massive and i think um i can't possibly comment on what that meant for you personally but but why i know for sure from the work that i've done with other people in the field that it's it's massive and it's part of the reason why we're in this position now where people are starting to talk more about it you know because it's it's just it is it's that thing when you hear someone else that's gone through that similar thing and somebody's been brave enough to put that out there like you have then it just it opens the door and it makes you feel less alone you know and and i'm very fortunate in that i've not i've not had a personal brush with that but i know a lot of people who have and I see a lot of people struggling in today's climate, you know, and it, and it's just um, the more that those conversations happen, the better, you know. But when I when I did I did a campaign on behalf of Cam, and it was nothing, nobody. I've been illustrating about three years, but we all just felt so touched by the statistics around suicide that we felt the need to lend our skills to it. And my big angle was: does the catharsis I get through my creativity? is this a common thing is artistic expression great emotionally and um the people who gave me interviews despite never having done an interview are Stephen Merchant and Danny Dyer who some people said really you're going to talk to Danny Dyer about that and I said yeah because he's this bravado typecast caricature of a man but underneath my guess is there's a lot going on and Danny was completely open and gave us about an hour and a half and talked about how if it wasn't for acting he probably wouldn't be here and all this stuff and the empowerment and the amount, just like yourself there, James, the amount of people that just came forward and went, what you guys have done there has just, just helped me no end. And that's the the most empowering feeling I've ever had. Well, I think that works, actually, having somebody like Danny Dyer, because he's not a typical person who you might expect to open up about that. And also because of his audience, you know, he's he's mainly known for gangster films and football violence documentaries. Yeah. And which is, you know, as you said, is a kind of world of machismo. And, you know, I know people in both of those walks of life and, um, you know, they do go through, you know, the same things anyone else goes through. And it, it, But maybe the opportunity to talk about it is even more repressed because you don't want to appear soft or weak, which mm -hmm. obviously sometimes opening up about emotions is perceived to be. Um, and... So yeah, that's that sounds like a good thing. But he said something really good about Brexit. I remember him being on a breakfast show, saying something really astute about about. I think it was about Brexit. He was like, you know, it was a brilliant point. You know, just he's a much smarter guy than people like to give him credit for. 
you know, when you talk to him man to man, he's uh, he's quite a smart fella. With, with, with everything that people associate that 90s cultural era with, I'd say you have the same effect. You know, it's, you're not the first person people would assume to talk about something like that. So I think it has the same surprise. Yeah, you know, when, when I, made a, I made a series for Bravo with a guy called Glenn Barden, who was the director, he ran me up and said, well, do, you, do you want to help me make this series and front it about riots? It was a great, it was great. It's on YouTube, apparently. And it was really good fun doing it. And when it came out, the Daily Telegraph said, surprisingly intelligent. <laughs> it's like, no shit, guess what? <laughs> Brilliant. Well, yeah. um, lastly, where's the best place for people to get the book? Well, there's sort of three different ways you can do it. Uh, you can, if you want to be wholesome, you can go online to the, I think it's called the bookseller.com or bookseller.org which is an amalgamation of all the different independent bookshops. Oh, the book, uh, bookshop, which is called Bookshop. Yeah, so that will, there'll be somewhere in Swansea or Scarborough that will have a copy and it will be of great benefit then to sell it. So if you want to be supportive of the publishing industry, if you want it really fast and cheap, Amazon will get it to you the next day. Or if people want a dedicated and signed copy, which I've sold about 500 of, they can um, just follow me on any of the, you know, Twitter or Instagram at James, James Brown. And I, I do them for the cost of the book and the price of the postage. And I just write, you know, whatever they want in it and sign it. As I say, it's on Audible and on Kindle as well. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I've had so much, such a brilliant response, you know, people, every day somebody tweets it and says, I'm really enjoying the book. Oh, quite often they message me, you know. It's like, don't tell me, tell your friends. You know, yeah. sort of, thank you for telling me, but <laughs> tell your friends, they might, and don't lend them it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I did just want genuinely want to thank you for writing it because for me personally, it's been a massive reminder of just running with them passions and doing it for yourself, you know, which is what I've built my whole career on. But the timing of this, I think, coming into a recession now when a lot of people are starting to panic with client work and everything else. Yeah. Just your story is a great example of um, just running with those passions and working out where you, you know, where your place is in it and making it happen. So I just want to thank you for writing it because it's a, it's a brilliant, amusing read, but it's also a really inspiring one. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully your listeners will pick up on that message. <laughs> DM, um, DM me at James James Brown and I'll sign and send you one. Thank you ever so much to James Brown for taking the time to come and talk to little old me because I can never provide you know what the bbc what the guardian can but i like to think i can bring a different kind of conversation and i know for sure that i've got this passionate um audience of creativity lovers who want to know about the nuts and bolts of it all so i hope you enjoyed that guys and do give it a listen do give it a share please i want james to to get that book out there because there's some really important pertinent stuff about mental health and about you know about the change in voice around the topic of mental health particularly in men because there was this real cultural roadblock you know stiff upper lip men don't cry and all that stuff and it's bollocks and i think we all know that now um sadly james lost his mum to suicide i think it's heartbreaking but i also just want to give him a major pat on the back for actually having the you know the courage to come and talk about that because it's going to help so many people as he referenced in the chat so I hope it did something for you. I, 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 that was one of the highlights of my career, talking to James. And um, thank you 
to him. And thank you to you guys for listening. Big thank you to the founder supporter of the show for making it possible. Illustration X, go and take a look at their brilliant range of global illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. Big episodes coming up, as I mentioned earlier. The book is coming along. It's just over 100,000 words now, and that's going to be coming out later this year. Very excited about it. Um, anything else? Yes, I am speaking for the first time at Off Festival in Barcelona in March, which runs from the 23rd to the 25th of March. And I've managed to snag Hector Ayuso, who is the founder of just an amazing event which runs globally now but the big one is in Barcelona and what a thrill to be asked to talk there and at this point I don't know what I'm going to talk about I'm going to pull one of the topics from the creative condition because there's so much to work with um, but it's going to be a huge buzz and I don't need any excuse to get to Barcelona so I'm looking forward to that go and have a look at the lineup and maybe I'll see you there <laughs> if not see you next time thank you for listening <laughs>